0: Open your Bibles up, if you would, to John chapter uh, 5, and I would like for you, if you would, uh, to mark a couple of scriptures. We want to center in tonight on John chapter 5, verses 16 through 19, which is a new study for us. And I would also like for you, if you would, and we've got pieces of paper and, uh, that we've been singing with and so forth, I'd like you to mark uh, Philippians chapter 3, I want to glance at that momentarily. And uh, also, would like for you to mark Ezekiel chapter thirty-six. That's right after the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. We always listen to the prophet Jeremiah. Ezekiel chapter thirty-six. So that's uh, Philippians chapter three and Ezekiel chapter thirty-six. Really appreciate you, and uh, I'm just having having a wonderful time with you, and and uh, what a great service we had last night. And the worship and, of course, the Word is always wonderful. And uh, God's really been helping us and and stretching us. And today was a very productive day and and happy about that. Seemed to get uh, a lot of things done that we needed to get done. So, very pleased. Uh, I want to talk to you tonight, uh, again, out of verses 16 through 19 of John chapter 5, which is uh, uh, the beginning of a conversation that Jesus is having with the leadership of Israel. And uh, this conversation is a result of, a direct result of, uh, the ministry that's taken place in John chapter 5. Jesus, uh, in chapter 5, it's his second time that he's in Jerusalem, and he's at another feast. There were three main feasts that you had to attend if you were a Jewish male living in a certain vicinity of Jerusalem. Uh, This was one of them, and it's the uh, 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 the Feast of the Jews, I believe it is. Uh, Yeah, the Feast of the Jews. And uh, so Jesus had to attend this. Uh, It was required by the law. It was required uh, by the leaders of Israel, you might say. And uh, he's come up for this feast. And uh, uh, just kind of a a brief overview of the first uh, 15 verses, which is the story there. Jesus comes up to Jerusalem. Uh, The author picks up where Jesus is at in the temple. He's, He's by the sheep gate. There was a number of different gates that you could come in around the temple. And uh, this, is one of those, this is one of the gates. It was the Sheep Gate. And it's, of course, they call it the Sheep Gate because that's, that's probably where they brought the animals in for the sacrifices and, and that sort of thing. And probably there were animals that were kept there. But the part that we're focusing in on that John wants us to see is uh, a particular area by the Sheep Gate, which was this pool, which in Aramaic we call Beth, uh, Bethsaida. And around this pool were a bunch of, uh, of, of crippled uh, people, disabled people, uh, uh, they had all types of diseases. Uh, that that was this area of the temple where these people stayed. And the reason they were here at this pool is there was this tradition uh, that that had been established that uh, the waters in this pool had a had a kind of a. Uh, I don't want to say the waters had a healing effect, but there was a tradition that when the waters were stirred, they would get this stirring, bubbling type of uh, uh, deal going on. And that was, a, that was a sign that an angel had descended and walked in the pool. And the belief was is that if you got into the pool quick enough, the first person in, but even the first person had to get in quick enough, uh, when they got into the middle of the pool while it was being stirred, they would be healed. So you have all of these people that are gathering around this. It's not found in Scripture. I'm having trouble finding it in the Scriptures. But uh, that was one of the traditions of uh, uh, of what was taking place here. So uh, you have, it centers in on the conversation. Uh, Jesus begins to have with a man who's been there for 38 years. So he's had some, of course, bad luck with the whole getting in thing. And... uh, Uh, Jesus uh, learns of this situation. He learns about uh, this man being here for 38 years. He approaches him and uh, he asks him what is seemingly the hottest question. He says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And, of course, you know, I don't know how you respond sometimes to the way Jesus uh, acts or some of the things that he says, but in my mind I was thinking, come on, that's kind of a ridiculous question. I mean, the man's been there for 38 years. Uh, he's refused to go on with life as, uh, as it is. He's refusing to just say, hey, uh, I would come to a point in my life where I would just say, hey, you know, it's, it's not going to work out. This whole angel deal just hasn't panned out for me. I'm just going to learn to live with my circumstances the way they are. Uh, I'm going to go on. And that would happen several years prior to this. 38 years, this silent rebellion is going on with this guy. He's remaining in this situation. Well, the man uh, is response to Jesus when Jesus says, do you want to get well? The man uh, tells him, hey, there's no one here to help me in when the pool is stirred. uh, stirred. Every time I try to get in, someone else beats me to it. And so, hey, uh, kind of probably insinuating, if you want to stay and help me out, you can. And uh, Jesus looks at him in verse 8 and says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Uh, Three imperatives in the original language, they're commands. Uh, uh, He doesn't have a choice in this. Jesus looks at him, and the whole focus of the passage is on the speaking of Jesus and the authority in his words. He says, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the the, the passage says in verse 9, at once or immediately the man was cured. Uh, He picked up his mat and walked. And then immediately John goes into uh, what day this took place. This took place on a Sabbath, which uh, you have this man who has been healed, This miraculous event's taking place in his life. He's been here for 38 years, folks. Really interesting. 38 years. He's healed. Now, the first person he encounters after he's healed that the text tells us he's carrying his mat is the Jews. Which, in my mind, is rather humorous. Uh, It's the first day this man's walked, possibly in his entire life, at least for 38 years. And he gets busted by the cops for carrying his mat. He gets busted by the temple police for carrying his mat. Uh, I mean he's never walked much less carried anything and it's the first day he's ever walked he grabs his mat he's walking he gets stopped and they're saying hey what are you doing carrying your mat and as a side note it's really interesting to notice this group the Jews he's been there for 38 years you would think that they would have bumped in him at, uh, at, some, at some point they were there inspecting at some time they had been on a shift where they were expecting inspecting the sheep that were coming in They had to be approved by a priest you understand uh, at some point in time, 38 years, I'm telling you, they're going to have known this guy. He's been there. He's got his mat there. And when he says, Jesus, take up your mat, the idea is take up your bed. Take up your home and, and get out of here. Don't ever come back. You're free. You don't have to live here anymore. So they're going to know him. And the first thing out of their mouth is not, whoa, whoa, look at you. <laughs> You're walking. You know, uh, It's not uh, uh, any inquiries as to his healing. It's uh, this oppressive It's this oppressive stance that they have on, hey, you're carrying your mat. And they miss all that he's been healed from. And we've got a study dedicated to that. Seems like sometimes that's the attitude in church. You ever been to a revival where a guy comes to the altar and he gets saved? He's lived a horrendous lifestyle. Everyone knows it. And uh, God moves on his life. He comes down to the altar. He breaks. He's crying. And uh, he stands up. He's free. You listen to his testimony, and he uses a language that you wouldn't use. He talks like you wouldn't talk. He, he's, he's crying. He's, he's, you know, snot's going everywhere, and, and hardly anybody can understand him. And right after the service, someone comes up to him, and the first thing they say is, Now, you're going to cut that hair, right? You're going to take out that earring, right? Yeah, that, that, that poster you have, you're going to take that down, right? Hey, you're, and they start laying on them these rules, and there's, there's this, See, that's this group. It's sad, isn't it? See, that's this group right here. And uh, they pounce on this guy. And then he says, hey, uh, the man who told me to pick up my mat and walk, uh, I, I don't know where he's at. And the, and, and the text tells us in verse th- 13, the man had no idea because Jesus had slipped away into, it, into the crowd that was there. Uh, and that's initiative of Jesus. He, he just didn't get overrun by the crowds. He slipped away into the crowds. It was his initiative on that type of deal. And... Um, so verse 14 tells us later, Jesus comes back to the temple and finds the man here, which is a story in and of itself. This man's been there for 38 years. I mean, he hates this place. It's a stubborn rebellion in his life. He refuses to leave. He, he will not leave until he's healed. He finally gets freedom granted to him and Jesus comes back and where does he find him? Same place. Living in the same place. And then his, it makes you think of Jesus' question and do you want to get well and maybe how ridiculous that question was not how pinpointed it was. And Jesus says, uh, see, you're still well. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. And the man goes away and tells the Jews, hey, I found out the guy who's doing this. It's Jesus. And so we come into our passage, and it says, verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And I'm going to continue to read our passage. And Jesus said to them, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. Uh, our passage is really interesting because uh, the whole, whole, our whole passage is dealing with, it's the response to what took place uh, in terms of Jesus' ministry in the temple. And it's kind of interesting. Jesus acts and the leaders of Israel grumble. Uh, Jesus respond to their grumbling and they grumble more to his response of his grumbling. And so it's this kind of transition back and forth. Verses 1 through 15 is what Jesus did. Verse 16 is the Jews grumbling. Verse 17 is Jesus trying to explain himself. Verse 18 is more Jewish grumbling about Jesus' explanation of why they were grumbling at him for the first place, if that makes sense. Uh, So they're grumbling in verse 18. Verse 19 is a long dialogue by Jesus as a response to their grumbling to his answer of their first grumbling uh, about what he did in the temple. So it's really complicated, but it's not that complicated when you're looking at it. Uh, but that's kind of our passage. And they're really frustrated. Um, rules. Christianity at times uh, can be misunderstood. Uh, we at times, it is so easy, you understand. Uh, for me, I'm talking from my perspective. It is so easy for Jeremiah to become all focused. It is so easy for Jeremiah to become morally uh, guided instead of person guided. Rules guided versus person, person guided. The right thing to do guided instead of the person guided. See, we revolve around a person, not a set of rules. See, we live for a person, not a set of morals. Um, in terms of my family. I'm kind of an introvert, okay? And even when I go to Indianapolis uh, and, and visit, I like to be by myself. And, uh, and especially in my own family, when I go to Muncie, I really like to be by myself. And it's not that I don't like my family. I love my family, but I like my privacy. I'm, I'm very much like that. I just like my routine. I, like, I love my fifth wheel and my dogs and my wife. And if, if we could just cut off the rest of the earth sometime and just be us, wow, I'd be happy forever probably. Um, I don't know if they'd be happy, but I'd be happy. And... Sometimes I know my mother calls me and wants me to do something, and I do things out of, well, it's the right thing to do. I do something because morally it's correct. I do something because, well, hey, I should probably do this kind of thing. Which you may look at that and say, hey, what's wrong with that? Well, again, I'm not morally directed. I'm person-directed. That I am to be driven by Him, that I am to respond to Him, that everything going on in my life is not a direct result of a list in my life, but it is a it is a person in my life. If that makes sense. Now, um, this has meant a lot. This has meant a lot to me uh, as a new Christian. Um, when I became a Christian in 1995, uh, I felt absolute freedom. I was old and I was out of high school. First of all, so I had not had any authority save myself. And I did a lot of things that people didn't like, but see, I'd done things all my life that, anybody did, that a lot of people didn't like, so it never bothered me. And I began to develop a set of rules in my life. Okay? I began to develop a set of rules in my life, but they were rules not for the sake of rules. They were not rules that anybody imposed upon me. They were rules that Jesus implemented in my life. Uh, one of the first things he began to deal with me on when I was a Christian, became a Christian, was, hey, no alcohol. Jeremiah, you need to stay away from alcohol. Um, why? Well, it was killing my life. And so he, he moved upon me. He impressed upon me. I don't want you to be a part of this. For you, Jeremiah, I'm talking to you. This wasn't in a crowd. This was he and I. I'm telling you, stay away from alcohol. So immediately on my list of, of guidelines for my life became, the, became a statement of Jeremiah, stay away from alcohol. And that was a direct result of Jesus. So the reason I don't drink was not because I was a Nazarene. I have to tell you that. See, the reason I don't drink is not because I'm a Nazarene. The reason I don't drink is because it's a direct result of Jesus working in my life saying, stay away from alcohol. The next thing he began to do was cigarettes, which he did. He took four or five months to do that. And again, it's been years later, so uh, I can say this now. And I'm an ordained minister. I'm legal. Uh, But I smoked for about three months after my call to ministry. And Ken. Those of you raised in the church probably look at me and think, what in the world were you thinking? Well, I didn't know any better. And I don't know if anybody knew. Uh, I, I know my pastor had to know. Um, I didn't have my local license or anything, but I was feeling a call to ministry, I was pursuing a call to ministry, and I, and I smoked. I smoked cigarettes. I'd been smoking for 10 years. One day, God began to deal with me. I was in the back of a, of a semi-trailer at UPS. I loaded, uh, loaded semi-trailers, and God said, and I was getting stressed out, and there was, you know, of course that's a stressed out job anyway. And I was receiving pressure, and I was thinking to myself, I need a cigarette. And Jesus said, wouldn't it be something if you came to a point in your life, instead of longing for a cigarette, you just long for me. Every time you hunger for a cigarette, just hunger for me. And it, it pressed it upon me, and he began to deal with me on it. And so I stopped buying them, and I and, uh, started bumming them, and just kind of, that was my, my method to, to get off. <laughs> so I became a bum, it stuck with me. And, uh, but I... I end up quitting and just came to a point in my life where I knew God was picking me up and said, hey, I don't want to smoke anymore. And so smoking cigarettes was not a direct result of my pastor saying, hey, if you're going to be a preacher, you can't smoke. Smoking was a direct result of God influencing my life. Okay? And so as I was beginning to walk and, and live for him, I had a set of rules that I lived by. But they were not rules that someone else imposed upon me. They were, they were direct result of Jesus speaking in my life. And I've been living that way ever since. Little did I know that when you get into the Bible, that's how the Bible calls you to live. That's the big deal of the scriptures. That's what we're talking about. Now, the danger of not living like that is you become rules-centered and not Jesus-centered. Okay? Uh, I talked about this this weekend with the teenagers. Talk, I'll talk to you about it briefly. Uh, I, I've never liked uh, just across-the-board rules that, take, uh, that, 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 that eliminate any conversation with Jesus. For instance, uh, I've heard youth pastors say, you know, I don't allow anything in my home, any, any, any music in my home unless it's Christian music. Well, I understand that but you understand that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Unless Jesus says, hey, don't listen to anything but Christian music. But most of the time, it's just, hey, there'll be no Christian music if you're going to be a teen, you're going on a youth weekend, only thing is Christian music, I only listen to Christian music, that's fine. And they make a really big deal about that. Which I bring the fact is, is the only thing, is the only thing you watch on television is Christian tele- programming. Is all you watch is the Trinity Broadcasting Net- Network? I feel sorry for you if you do. Uh, I, I, love, I love Trinity, but you can all handle so much Trinity, probably. and uh, Or maybe it's all veggie tales. And if that's your idea of entertainment, wonderful. Um, but most of us watch the news, most of us listen to some secular music. Uh, you all sing Happy Birthday, right? I don't think that's Christian. Is that Christian? <laughs> <laughs> Conviction. <laughs> See, it doesn't mean that it's. Silence. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's bad you understand uh, do I listen to Christian music yes do I listen to non-Christian music yes well Jeremiah how do you know what you should listen to and what you shouldn't listen to the moment that I listen to something that Jesus is not like I walk intimately enough with him I walk tight enough with him that I know it immediately he speaks and I respond so you say what kind of music do you listen to the kind of music Jesus would listen to what kind of music do you not listen to? The kind of music Jesus wouldn't listen to. And see, so, so again, Christian, I don't have a rule in my life. That says, oh, I only listen to Christian music. Well, yeah, I listen to a lot of Christian music. But you understand, I've met teenagers who say, oh, I only listen to Christian music. And some of the Christian music they listen to is not really Christian music. And they cannot tell the difference. They can't tell the difference, man. Uh, I've heard parents say, oh, my, my teens don't see anything but PG movies. Some PG movies are worse than rated R movies, you understand. And they can't tell the difference. This, this eats me up. See, they can't watch anything but PG movies, but they can watch anything they want on Monday through Wednesday tele- cable television in the evening, which 90% of that is worse than a PG movie. So I don't have even have rules that say the only thing I, I can watch is a PG movie. See, I don't have rules like that. See, I, I watch movies, but see, the moment Jesus says, hey, I, I don't consider this, are you with me? I don't consider this entertainment. I don't. This is not what I would. This is not what I consider entertainment. Hey, Jeremiah, I'm not watching this. I'm out of there. See, that's that's the deal. See, that's what we're talking about. Uh, it, it's it's relationship versus rules. Uh, I want to talk to you about this tonight. This is exactly what this passage is over, and this is what Jesus is trying to get across to them. Uh, let's ask the Lord to help us, Father. We love you this evening. Help us understand your word. I am so legalistic I, I probably hide I do things because I ought to and not because I know you want me to I want to live my life in direct result of, your, of you and your leading I want to live in constant communion with you I don't want to live rule-based. I want to live person-based. I don't want Christianity, I don't want my lifestyle to be defined by this is what I do and this is what I do not do. I want my life to be defined by I'm in love with Jesus and I'm living with Him every day and He's leading me and guiding me and I walk with Him and I talk with Him and He's in my humor. We love You, Jesus. Open our eyes to Your truth this evening and we'll give You all the praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you about this passage. Uh, Let's look at some of Jesus' language and some of the reasons the Jews were upset. Uh, The first thing you're going to come into is uh, the structure of our our text. And again, it's just the very beginning of the conversation. Verse 16 says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Uh, Jesus was doing things on the Sabbath that Jews did not do. Okay? And so because of this, they persecuted him. It carries with it the idea of aggressively pursuing. It's, it's, it's going after. It, it, it's it's, it's a standing in his path saying, hey, we're not allowing this kind of stuff. Now, I've really kind of struggled with the Jews. I want to share this with you. It's really neat in a study. Uh, you come into a passage at times with preconceived ideas of the characters, which can be dangerous because it, it doesn't take very long, especially in this gospel, where you begin to realize that the Jews are not in love with God, okay? I'm not, going to, uh, paint a pretty, I'm not going to paint a picture where these Jews were just great people and, and they happened to absolutely miss that Jesus was the, uh, 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 the Messiah. And they were really great people, they just they didn't know it. He makes it very plain that they lied, they twisted, they were evil. And in fact, you come to a point in this gospel where Jesus says, hey, you do what your father does and I do what my father does. And they said, our father is Moses. And Jesus says, no, your father's the devil. <laughs> Talk about aggressive. Your father's the devil, man. The same thing that makes him do what he does is the same thing that makes you do what you do, man. So, I mean, it came down. Jesus himself looks at them and says, hey, I'm telling you, you're out of line. You're out of character. You're not living for God. So I'm not going to make these guys out to look innocent. However, in terms of them questioning what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath makes a little bit of sense here. Uh, and they're persecuting him. Um, in, in my study of, uh, of this passage and the Jews and their, their opposition against Jesus, uh, it made me remember Paul. Flip over with me to Philippians, if you would. In Philippians, Paul begins to talk a little bit about uh, how he was. You understand Paul himself was a Pharisee, who is, uh, uh, he's, that would, that's, one, that's the group that Jesus is dealing with in John chapter 5. Paul himself was a Pharisee. He was a Jew. And, and he begins to talk about his resume. Listen to some of the things that Paul says. Listen to what it says. Uh, I want to pick it up, verse uh, chapter 3, the end of verse 4, with it, uh, beginning in the NIV with if anyone. You can read along with, with me on this or follow along. It says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Listen to this. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church. Now you notice back in our passage, what were the Pharisees doing to Jesus? What were the leaders of Israel doing to Jesus? Persecuting him. Now, you look at Paul's statement, he says, as for zeal, that's passion, that's hunger, that's, that's enthusiasm, that's, that's literally, the word there, zeal, is jealousy for God. As for zeal, persecuting the church. And as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Now, you never ever hear, get this, this is amazing to me, you never ever hear Paul, in any of his addresses, in any of his testimony about his past, looking at people and saying, hey, I was living in rebellion against God. He never was outright, in his own mind, living in disobedience and rebellion and sin against God. You'd never find it with Paul. you never find it with Paul. Isn't that amazing? See, he was never living in absolute rebellion and disobedience against God for this kind of deal. In fact, what they were doing, you understand, from an Old Testament perspective, was sin. Uh, when, when you look at some of Paul and his breathing murderous threats and going from town to town to town and standing there and literally watching as Stephen was stoned, you understand, as he was killed, that was a sense of somehow fulfilling uh, fulfilling the commandment. That was somehow fulfilling uh, the call that God had in terms of his people of Israel. Uh, they, they live like that today. I don't, I don't know if you've been to Israel. I haven't personally. have friends who have been there. And uh, I had a pastor was telling me how he went to the Wailing Wall. You know what the Wailing Wall is, right? It's the wall where it's the last original piece of the temple that's still standing. And people go and they pray. And they stick little prayers there. Well, he went there. Thought it would be neat to do it. He did it. But uh, when, when you go up there, you have, to wear, you have to go with your head covered. You understand? And um, you go and you keep your head covered. And, and you can pray and stick it there. And there's people that are praying at the wall. I said, what would have happened if I said, there, God's not in that wall. He says, well, obviously, I know that. I said, what would happen if you'd have just, I don't know, got close to the wall and just took off your hat and flipped that thing aside and said, oh, and jumped around? He goes, they would have shot you. (laughs) And I would have said, oh, that's fulfilling the law, right? And they'd have said, yeah, it is. Because they really believe that, you understand. See, under the old covenant standards of the law, yeah, you understand. That That is keeping the commandments, you understand. Now again, we have different perspectives on that, and i don 't believe really and think I believe that. but the idea is is you can 't I can't find myself looking at the Jews, and again, it's exposed that they are greedy, that they are, uh, that they are evil, that they're not living for God. What they're doing is they're using the letter of the law for their own ability, for their own selfish abilities, for their own selfish gain. That's what they're doing. And they come with a legitimate approach that, hey, this guy is not, he, he's healing on the Sabbath. He's doing these things on the Sabbath. He's encouraging others to break the Sabbath, and they're persecuting him, you understand. So it's almost a legitimate claim, and it gets even bigger than this. Um, Jesus responds, and listen to how he responds. They're really frustrated to persecuting him because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them in verse 17, My father is always at work. Now when he says my father, you and I as 21st century Americans don't don't, uh, lift an eyebrow to it. It makes perfect sense. We talk about God that way. But in their day and age, They did not do that. There was this separation between God and man. Uh, The the known understanding between God and man is that he is transcendent. Uh, There's no likeness. They did refer to God as Father because Israel was a son to God. But you understand it was more of in a general sense. The way that Jesus is talking about here is that this is a direct lineage type of thing. There's a familiarity. You with me? There's a familiarity with this kind of thing. Uh, It's an intimate deal. And uh, in Jesus referring to his, his, his God or, or, or our God as his father, my father language, it's putting himself on a plane that's equal with his father. And in fact, that's what they say. Jesus says, my father is always at his work. To this very day, I too am working. In other words, listen. Hey, I call him dad. My father is at work. And by the way, the things he's doing are the things that I'm doing. And of course, the Jews respond to this in verse 18. For the Jews, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the law or the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Uh, Breaking and calling uh, is in the present tense. It means that this is a habitual thing. This is a a continual thing. He's always doing these kinds of things. It just wasn't a one-time occurrence. It's several. So he's breaking uh, the Sabbath and calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. And then you come into verse 19, and Jesus responds by talking about how the Son and the Father can do nothing apart from each other. Now, what's really important for us to understand is, again, the Jews are coming, and this is great truth, the Jews are coming from an Old Testament perspective, And Jesus is coming from a New Covenant, New Testament perspective. And this is going to make a lot of sense to you. I hope it does because it makes incredible sense to me. I find myself wanting and slipping into an Old Covenant perspective, an Old Covenant relationship with God, versus the New Covenant perspective that he wants me to have. Jews are coming from an Old Covenant perspective. Jesus is coming from a New Covenant perspective. Here's the difference. Uh, Old Covenant. The foundation of the Old Covenant was all about faith. We've been talking about that. Faith, trust, belief. It's all about intimacy. It's all about I trust you. It's all about you're leading and I I have faith in you. Which you understand that was around way before the law ever came. God comes to a man by the name of Abraham and his wife Sarai. He says, hey, uh, I want to choose you. I want to set you apart for myself. Changes their names. Changes their identity. Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah. And he says, I'm going to raise for you. Hey, I'm I'm going to raise out of you a a people for myself. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to call you by my name. See, it's all intimate language. That's faith. Then the law was never given at that point, you understand. Uh, The promised son came. Uh, uh, Abraham had a son. And his son's name was? Isaac. Had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a couple. The promise ascended, uh, or or the the promise continued through which son? Jacob. Jacob. Uh, and he got that through some really uh, interesting circumstances. Uh, God ends up changing Jacob's name from Jacob to Israel. Israel, right before he met his brother. And Israel has how many sons? Twelve, which we call the twelve tribes of Israel the second of the youngest of those sons was a man by the name of Joseph and he had a vacation to Egypt and uh, he went to Egypt and through some uh, God inspired God directed uh, uh, circumstances he he arises to the top in Egypt out of prison and uh, for a time uh, all of the people of Israel come under all the descendants of Abraham the people of Israel God's people come under the protection of Egypt Uh, Joseph is there and he meets the family and we know that whole story but then there's a new Pharaoh that comes on uh, the, the throne, doesn't know, didn't know Joseph, didn't know his, his descendants, didn't know the Hebrew people as the last Pharaoh did. And so there, there were so many of them, threw them into slavery. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, horrible, horrible treatment of the people. They're there for several hundred years. And understand, up to this point, it was just faith. It was following him. It was trusting him. It's hey, I, you're leading me, and I, we're following you. It's, it's this intimacy issue, you understand. that This is how they were called to live. There's no law. It wasn't until a man by the name of Moses came about, and, of course, we understand that whole story, especially if you watch the Prince of Egypt, and uh, Moses, uh, under God's direction and God's ability, God's providence, leads the people of Israel out of, uh, out of Egypt, leads them to the mountain where he, he had appointed for them to go, and then, only then, he gives them the law. Okay? Now, the law was, always, it was the standard of righteousness. It was the standard of right living in the Old Covenant. The basis of the Old Covenant, what God intended all along, was intimacy. Wow, this is great. He intended intimacy. Hey, I want to have, have a relationship with you. I want you to learn to trust me. I want to love you. I want to call you my own son. I want to call you by my name. This was the Old Covenant. And, and again, if you want to live right under the Old Covenant, you obey the law. So the law wasn't, hey, I do the law so God loves me. No, I live in faith and I trust him. And in that trusting, in that faithfulness, you understand I live by the standards of the law. But the relationship that was, it was a limited intimacy. And that's really only half the story, but it's enough to understand that God is out there and I'm over here. I am following him. I am trusting him. I'm walking after him. And I show that by living a life in obedience to the law. That's Old Covenant. You understand, that's their perspective. That's how the Jews were seeing this. That's how the Jews understood this whole deal. That's the way they were living with God. You understand, that's not. That's not the way that Jesus was living. That's Old Covenant. New Covenant is God is no longer over there, but God is literally living inside of me, not giving me a list of things that I'll do. I don't do things uh, as, a, as a response to uh, his uh, f- uh, faithfulness in my life. I don't, I, he's not over there and says, hey, trust me, I want you to go do these things, or trust me and live these certain ways. He literally makes his home inside of me and literally leads me in my life. Now, this is, that's not, again, the Bible always says it better than Jeremiah. I add you Mark, Ezekiel. The prophets begin to talk about this. And Ezekiel's full of it. Isaiah is really full of it. Full of, uh, of talking about this. Listen to what he says. I want you to look at Ezekiel 36, verse 24. We're going to read a few verses. Ezekiel begins to talk about what's going to take place, inevitably, in Jesus. Okay? This is where God is taking His people. Listen to this. Chapter 36, verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. When he says give you a new heart, put a new spirit, carries with it the idea of a whole new attitude. It's you're, bold, you're moldable, you're bendable, you're pliable. He can work with you. It's a new attitude type of deal. Uh, I will remove from you your heart of stone, which is, you know, unable to be moved, it's uh, molded, it's unable to be moved, it's unable to be uh, uh, molded into the person that, you know, he wants you to be. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Listen to verse 27. I will put my spirit, big S, okay? I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. See, that's the whole idea about writing the law on the fleshly tablets of your heart, kind of thing. See, it's literally, God's no longer out there telling me what to do when I go do it. God literally moves inside of my body and moves me to live a life that He's called me to live. And it's intimacy. See, this is how He calls me to live. It's not rule based, you understand, it's person based. It's not, hey, uh, where's God? Well, he's in the pillar of cloud or he's in the pillar of fire. He's leading us over there and we're following him and he wants us to do these things. If we're going to follow him, if we're going to trust him, hey, these these are the way we're supposed to live. See, you don't have that in the New Testament. See, that's not the idea. It's not that the law is gone, you understand. But it's literally that Jesus moves. Now, get this. Jesus moves inside of my life. And how do you know the way that he wants you to live? He speaks to you. He molds you. He moves you. He he pushes you. It's a discernment kind of thing. How do I know the way that he wants me to live? He speaks and I respond. How did you know, Jeremiah, he was not supposed to watch that movie? Is it in the Bible? Don't see this movie right here. Well, no, it's not in the Bible. There are lots of things in the Bible or there's lots of things that I don't do that are not necessarily in the Bible. But see, I know not to do those things because he, re- he somehow speaks to me in a way that I understand and I respond to the leading in my life. See, this is, the, this is what Jesus is trying to get across to the Pharisees. and they, they don't understand it. See, they're coming from two absolute polar opposites. And they, they have no concept. Uh, Jesus is talking in intimate ways that they have no idea, they have no understanding of this. Now you begin to see this in our passage if you want to turn back to John You begin to see this very plainly uh, in our passage. In Jesus, uh, verse 19, he says this to them, trying to explain himself. Jesus gives them this answer and says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Um, There's a word in this passage that means a great deal. Uh, to what Jesus is saying, and it's the word do. Okay, uh, A couple different words for do in the New Testament, uh, several, perhaps, and uh, variances of those words. The main, uh, the main two, uh, or at least the two we want to look at uh, this evening, are the words proso and poieo. Okay? Proso and poieo. Uh, proso, the best way that I could describe it to you and the way that I understand it, it is, a, it is an action. It's doing something. It's something that's taking place. Uh, I, pick up this, uh, I pick up this item here, and I uh, chuck that thing across the room, and it lands on the floor, bounces a couple times, skids to a stop. I did that. Okay, Praso. That's something that I did. You could come up here and do the same thing. It's, it's describing a generic sort of action. Praso. It's one of the ways it's used, typically how it's used. Now, pollo is a little bit different. Uh, I really like this. The way that poieo is used throughout the New Testament, and even some authors and uh, commentators have commented on this, is the way poieo is used in the New Testament. It is translated do, but it's not necessarily doing something like you would think something is done. For instance, um, a tree bears fruit. Okay? Uh, you go up to an apple tree in the right time of the year, and you're going to find apples on that tree. And you're going to say, wow, well, who did that? Well, you're going to say, well, the tree did that. That's what the tree did. The tree bore fruit. Well, you say, how did it do that? And no matter how hard you try, you understand, you're never going to be able to bear fruit like a tree bears fruit. You're not going to be able to do the same thing that a tree does. Because what a tree does, it doesn't have to try to do, and maybe it does have to try to do, And to get in the inner nature and the inner workings of how it does it is probably missing the point. The concept of what what the word means is literally it's due to the nature of the tree that the action is done. It's an inside creative deal that takes place that causes the tree to do something that it does. It bears fruit. Okay, you didn't understand it. Let me give you another one. uh, John Juman, good friend of mine, he, he describes it this way, and I've heard commentators. I've also read in commentators to talk about it one way. It uh, has to do with an artistic, it's an artistic thing. Uh, you ever met any art people? <laughs> They're weird. Art people are weird. And, uh, of course, they probably call me weird. Well, a lot of people call me weird. But the idea of the artist is, uh, when I travel with Stephen Manley, uh, I was an intern of his a long time ago. Uh, in fact, he's probably the way I am now. So get, you have to get upset with him if you're... Um, but I traveled with him the same time a guy by the name of Jonathan Green traveled with him. Jonathan went to Savannah College of Art and Design and was called to be an artist. It's God worked in me. That's just how he was. And he just, see, he lived in a different world than I did. We, we traveled in the same, the same unit, the same motor home, went to the same camps, slept in the same room, and lived in two different worlds. I would, come out of a, I would come out of that cabin, and if you asked us to describe that cabin, you would think we was in a different part of the campground, if not a different part of the world, because we saw things absolutely different. He took me, we went to New York City during the summer, and he took me to some of the greatest uh, uh, art museum display places in New York City. I was, I was ready to be impressed. and uh, <laughs> you know, To be quite honest, I, I thought I could paint most of that stuff. You know, yeah. it was, it was, it was border, some of those guys, borderline finger painting, you know, um, this fellow Picasso. I thought, what in the world? I'm in the wrong occupation. <laughs> I could do that. It did not hard at all. And uh, they had such respect for that guy. And see, that, that made no sense to me because you had this, this, this seemingly eight, nine year old kid painting this picture and people pay millions of dollars for that kind of thing. But one of the things that John helped me understand, Jonathan helped me understand, is that I could do the same things that he was doing on that picture, and his would be art, and mine wouldn't be. Okay? I mean, we could both paint the exact same picture. I'd probably paint it better, looking at his stuff versus mine. And his stuff would be art, my stuff would not be art. Because art is not just doing something, it's literally a message. It's literally something going on on the inside of the artist that is literally being portrayed and pulled out of the artist and being placed on canvas, and it's saying something. It's not just something you do. It is a creative activity that happens, and it just... See, it's the way that a tree bears fruit. A tree just doesn't do that. Yeah, it gets up one morning and says, well, it's that time of the year. Got to get some apples out here. Let's go. Get up, get out of this morning. Wham, start popping apples out everywhere. See, that's not the thing it is. It's literally the creative nature of the tree that bears apples. (sighs) What a word. This is the word that Jesus describes what was going on in the temple. He, did not look at the, he didn't look at the Pharisees and say, listen, God's doing this, so I've got to do it. Not necessarily that I don't agree with him or do agree with him. I just have to do it. I see God doing it. I say, okay, let me go try. I'll do that kind of thing. That's not the idea. He's using this word doing, the creative nature, the same thing that's working on uh, inside of God, the same things that's caught. Hear this. The same things that's causing God to do what he does is the same thing that's causing Jesus to do what he does. See, he looks at the Pharisees and says, you understand, do you? See, whatever, God, whatever makes him tick makes me tick. Whatever makes him do the things he does makes me do the things that I do. And you understand, this is, this is picked up continually throughout the New Testament. Paul talks about the, the characteristics in a Christian life uh, uh, the qualities of a Christian life love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control as what of the Spirit? Fruit of the Spirit. Well, <laughs> what do you know about that? See, the fruit of the Spirit is not patience. Well, yeah, I've got to have patience. Yeah, my Aunt Tyra's coming this week, and uh, she's going to stay on. I've got to have patience. Really, I've got to get patience. I've got to work at it. I've got to try hard. Yep, got to. You know. See, that's not patience. See, that's never what God. Listen to me, young people. I'm telling you, that's never how God has called you to live. Hey, get patience. Get out there and do it. Just try harder. Buckle down. That's not patience. That's not what, That's not New Covenant. That's Old Covenant perspective. See, that's Old Covenant perspective. God's way over there going, get patience. And so I come out here, do my best to get patience. Hey, I love him. I trust him. I'm living for him. Now I'm going to live according to the law. Paul says, never worked. Ne- ne- never worked. Never was supposed to work. You're always going to fall short. So Christianity is God moves inside of my body and the direct result, the attributes of who he is begins to bear fruit in my life and you begin to see that I have patience but it's not because of me. It's literally the presence of Jesus who's living in my life and I'm giving myself over to him and the qualities that's going on in him begin to go on inside of me and I begin to bear his qualities in my life. Ah, That's it. That's the concept. That's what we're talking about. They didn't understand that. They did not get that. He looks at them and says, "Hey, see, you don't understand. See, the, the, he, he comes and you see this in our passage. He comes into the temple and he's so opposite of them. See, they'd missed grace, they'd missed mercy, they, they'd missed the fact that this boy had been there for thirty-eight years. Thirty-eight years he'd been there, and all they could see is that oh, he's breaking the law. Oh, he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Jesus comes into the temple, and he's driven to this guy. The text tells us that he learned of his condition." He came in and, and he saw these guys over here. And, and, the, and the disciples are saying, yeah, that guy's been here. And, oh, hey, remember that guy? And they're probably all joking around. Everyone knows him. Everyone's been there. Yeah, that guy's been there for 38 years. He doesn't have a chance. Jesus probably said, tell me about him. And he's driven to him, you understand. And what's so interesting about all this is he didn't want anything from that guy. He didn't come up. There was no gospel presentation. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's none, hey, uh, I tell you what, I'll heal you if you become a disciple. I'll heal you if you believe in me. See, there's none of that kind of thing. He didn't want anything from that guy. There was this this internal drive and motivation. He enters the life of this man and says, hey, get up, take up your mat, and get on down the road. And then he slips away into the crowd to the extent this guy doesn't even know who he was. See, the internal motivation that was going on inside of Jesus, it tells you what's going on inside of God. It tells you how he feels about that. And he tries to communicate that to the, the leaders of Israel. And so I'm telling you, the son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. I'm telling you, man. Whatever God's in whatever God's into, I'm into. Now let me tell you what that means in my life. I can see you're speechless over that. I want that. I don't want to be rule based. I don't like rule based. I want person-based. I want, I want for my family to come around. I want, see, I want to treat my wife not well. Well, how am I supposed to treat my wife well? Jesus has got to love her even though this happens. And, well, she does this. And, hey, I don't like that. And she doesn't do this. But, hey, I need to do the right thing and love her. I guess you can live like that, but not for very long and not for very happy. Uh, not for very long and not very happily you can live like that. See, the way that I want to live is, is Jesus, I invite you in my life and I want you to create a love in me for my wife that I do not have. Uh, I told you the other night about my father. I had severe revelation, uh, uh, re- reservations about him and my mother. Uh, extremely bitter feelings. And hey, God dealt with me about those when I was in college and said, go love your dad. You can't fake that. See, I can, go to the, I can go to the nursing home, man. I can call on him. I can stand beside him, put a smile on my face, send him cards, tell him a bunch much of loving. But that doesn't change the fact what's going on in here. And I felt like a hypocrite. And I came to a point in my life where I looked at him and said, hey, I, listen, I can't, man. Unless you do something about me, unless you change my perspective, unless you change me from the inside, I don't have a chance. And God moved inside of my life and created a love for my dad that was not there. Ah, uh, finances, lust, it's a big one. Um, perspectives about people. See, God comes in my life and changes me from the inside. Could you imagine living your whole life and, and you're twisted and, and, and you're askewed and you're and, and, and you and you read the word and it says, hey, hey, don't do this and don't don't lie, don't steal, you know, don't live in sexual immorality, don't don't this, don't all these kinds of things. You're overwhelmed, and I'm trying, I'm trying, and your body's leading you in a different direction. You're pulled in a direction, and hey, I'm not supposed to get angry, but I live in anger and, and all of this, and, and I'm not supposed to get mad when the guy cuts me off in traffic, and see, and he tells me I'm number one, and, and so I, I'm not supposed to get frustrated, that kind of stuff. Well, good luck. If you can pull that off, I'm happy for you. I have to turn toward him and say, hey, I want to strangle those people. I see this way. I, how, do you, how, do you, how do you kid yourself of that? You can convince yourself that, no, I really don't see that way, but you live a lie. See, I believe the new covenant is coming to him and saying, hey, I see this way. Move in my life and make me see another way. Change my perspective from the inside out. See, that's the whole new creation type of thing. That, that's the whole being an absolutely brand new person. That's what John Wesley meant by being entirely sanctified. Not that that is perfected, but it's, it's, it's an ongoing daily process of dying it's, I'm growing. It's, I'm growing like a weed. It's, see, that's what he's trying to get across to the Pharisees. And there's this arguing. There's this frustration. There's this non-understanding. And well, they're talking for two different things. Is that going on in your life? Is that going on in your life tonight? There is no room. And I have struggled with this. Paul says in his letters, I put no boundaries not boundaries. What's the word? Put no rules on my people. Talks about it in the Corinthian letters, uh, and, and one of the illustrations was meat sacrificed to idols. If one of you says, "Hey, it's sin. We can't do this," and another one says, "No, it's not sin. You can," which is right. Paul says, "You're both right." <laughs> Get that one. He says, "If you're fully convinced in your own mind." In other words, you're both walking with Jesus. You're both intimate with him. You're both living after him. And Jesus says, hey, it's okay for you. But he looks at them and says, no, it's not okay for you. Who's right? You're both right. Because you're living in response to Jesus. He says, but I want you to remember that, hey, you're not living single. Uh, you're not living in, in a single environment that your life affects everyone else. And so, hey, if you're going to cause your brother to stumble, even out of your own freedoms, don't take those for the sake of the many. Right. It's community. Okay? That's not legalism, you understand. And that's not. A, and again, I'm not talking about certain things. You can't please some people no matter what you do. You understand? And I, I please those in whom Jesus... You, you, then, then the question comes, oh, that don't let that become a rule. See, we all say, oh, amen. So you don't do anything that makes anybody else stumble. But that's not a rule. I don't live down a rule. Because when do you do... Some, what, then the question comes, well, when do you do it and it makes people stumble? And when you do not do it, so it won't make people stumble. And my answer is, whenever Jesus tells you to. <laughs> so it's not a rule. So I need to live in a way that's, that, that's pleasing to everybody else. Well, when, would I know that is, when, when do I know to do that when Jesus tells you to do that? See, it all comes back to him every time. See, there's no rules. Isn't it something that he absolutely refuses for you to live a life apart from him? He will not let you live a life apart from him. Where are you going that way? What do you want to do about this right here? How do you want me to live? It's, there's no rules. I can't find any rules. All I find is there's one rule. It's Him. It's living close to Him. It's being intimate with Him. It's walking close with Him. So, do I listen to Christian music? Yes. But I'm telling you, Jesus loves 80s music. Oh, I mean, He loves them. He loves the mullets, the feathered hair, the tight-rolled jeans. I'm telling you. Oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> But there are 80, there's 80's music that Jesus doesn't like. And well, I don't like it either. I want to live that way, folks. I want to live that way. So it's in, if you're understanding what Christianity is, it, see, it radically changes some of the way that I was taught. See, I had a picture of, of, of this Christianity, of this rule, this uh, horrible life of of just structure and I mean, it came down to don't put your glass on the Bible type of stuff. And I see all that melts away when you're with him. I'm tired of watching teenagers go to college and they know rules, but they don't know him from a hole in the ground. They know all the right things to say and they don't know him. They all that they all they know all the right memory verses, but they don't know him. All the right answers. They carry their Bible. They know what music to listen to, what to wear. They know all they know when to stand up, when to sit down, but they don't know Jesus. Isn't that frightening? Father, we love you this evening. I'm not against rules (laughs) after talking all about that. I'm not against rules. And I have rules. And you can have rules and not be legalistic. You can have rules and not be rules centered. I'm person centered. Jesus, I'm you. I'm you centered. I'm focused on you. And you and I have some rules, Jesus. You and I have some rules. But the reason the rules are because of you. And I found, Jesus, that you change rules and you implement rules. Some stay forever. Some stay for a time. Walk with me. Walk with me tomorrow, walk with me tonight as I go home and I watch my TV show. As I listen to my music, as I study the word, as I get into my hobbies. <laughs> I invite you to live, live life with me. I'm learning more about you. I'm learning that you have a sense of humor. I'm learning that you have interests. Other than just sitting around reading the hymnal. I'm learning that you like different styles of clothes, that you just don't wear a suit every single Sunday. I want to know about you. I want to know you like you know me. And when you speak, I'll respond. And we give you all the praise. And we ask these things in the name of your Son, Father Christ Jesus, Amen.